is part of being part of the OK Boomer generation. If you're not sure what that means, you know, you can Google it and, and find out. But as part of the OK Boomer generation, I want to start by giving kudos to the millennials. I know that doesn't happen very much, often from a boomer, okay? But I want to start by giving some kudos to the millennials for what I think, in my opinion, is a cultural positive. And what I mean by that is the fact that one of the things that, that, that uh, millennials have brought onto the scene for the culture to think about is a balanced lifestyle. And research shows that for the millennials, the most important lifestyle balance is work-life balance, uh, the balance between work and, and life. And, and uh, there's a lot of articles out there, and there's a lot of good things out there. And, and, but the truth, however, is that finding balance in the different areas of life is elusive for many, if not all of us. Uh, it's hard to balance life. It's hard to balance life between work and and school, and jobs, and children, and, and church, and all just all the different things that we have going on, finding balance is difficult. And, and part of what makes it even more difficult is the fact that since we are broken people living in a broken world, one of, uh, one of the things that, that, that depravity has done to us is the fact that our default, the default setting of life is being unbalanced. The natural thing for me to do is to be unbalanced in my life. And uh, that's that because, of, because of the effects of the fall, we're all unbalanced. We all have to work at living a balanced life. Now, if you look at the, the articles that are out there, you're going to find that within our culture, basically the, it, it advocates five areas of concentration when seeking to establish a balanced lifestyle. Uh, they talk about physical health, and that physical health comes through proper diet, uh, 150 minutes of, of weekly exercise, uh, sufficient rest, which would be anywhere from seven to nine hours in the evening, and, and, and also intentional daily relaxation where you take a moment or two. And even you'll see it sometimes advertised, you know, you know, the little circle that goes around for the app Calm, you know, where let's not do anything for 30 seconds you know, and there's, there's silence on the TV, and you're just kind of supposed to sit there and breathe in, breathe out. And, and, and that's part of finding balance, taking some time just to, just to relax. Also, mental vitality through planning daily tasks or setting achieve, and setting achievable goals, finding some kind of enjoyment activity that you, and try to do that once a day. Uh, you know, might be sitting outside, it, you know, just might be a walk, whatever, but just some kind of daily enjoyment activity and regular, regular, regular uh, mental stimulation. Uh, that might be reading, that might be playing a, a game or, or something like that to stimulate our thinking. Uh, they also talk about social health by developing a physical network of friends, not, you know, not just Facebook friends, but actually where you see somebody and you talk to them and you touch them and, and you, you laugh together and you, 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 you fellowship with one another. But, but developing a physical network of friends, uh, staying connected to family, uh, practicing active listening and, and, and precise speaking and becoming engaged in your community. They also talk about fostering a work-life balance by developing a personal financial plan, uh, reducing the amount of work that's taking home, and by setting boundaries. That there's just certain times when, when, when that doesn't happen. I know, for example, on, on I mean Fridays, uh, my, it, how my week is is laid out. Uh, the beginning of the week is more kind of administrative stuff, and then Wednesday starts studying, getting ready for Wednesday night, and Thursday and Friday, uh, and, and, and getting things more geared towards uh, uh, study, Sunday. So Friday, Friday, all I do is study on Friday. Most of Thursday I study, all of Friday I study. And I mean, unless you're dead or dying, people usually can't get me. Uh, I'm, I'm whole, I, I hold myself up and, and, and to do that and set some boundaries. And they're talking about doing that as this as well. And then and the final item, depending upon who's writing the article, the final item is usually a nod to some type of spirituality, uh, whether that's you know, transcendental meditation, whether that's church or whether that's some kind of religion, but they'll kind of give you uh, some type of nod to spirituality. And while all of these balancing acts 
have profit to us. I mean, you know, it's good to exercise. It's good to eat right. It's good to get plenty of rest. It's good to have a set of friends. It's good to stay connected. It's good not to take a lot of work home. I mean, all those different things have profit. They are not sufficient to live the kind of balanced life that God has called His children to live. Now, for the next several weeks, we're going to be taking a hiatus from our study on the parables of Jesus. One of the nice things about studying the parables of Jesus is that you can pretty much pick it up any other time to start the parables of Jesus. So we're going to kind of take a hiatus from it. I've enjoyed it. I know many of you have enjoyed it. But, and we've got plenty of parables still to cover. But we're just going to kind of, we finished a parable that's not really tied to a lot of other parables. So we're just going to kind of step back for just for, for several weeks. And we're going to t- do a textual study that's going to focus on Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, at least through 521 and possibly beyond. Possibly. We'll, we'll, we'll see. We, we might be able just to sum it up. We'll, we'll just see as, as we get there. But in this, this text, Ephesians 4 through 521, basically we're going to unpack the balanced life of a follower of Jesus Christ. What does it mean as a follower of Jesus Christ to live a balanced life? And this morning, our time is going to be spent, we're going to, spend, we're going to give you the historical setting of the book of Ephesians. We're going to give you the purpose as to why Paul is writing this book, because as we look at the balanced life of a believer, it's got to fit within the theme of the book. It's got to fit within the purpose of the book. And, and what, we're, what we're going to uh, present, the argument that we're going to make to you is this, is that the reason why, as believers, we are to live the kind of balanced lifestyle that, that, that Paul is going to talk about is not just so we have a good, quote-unquote, personal walk with Jesus. But this kind of balanced lifestyle is necessary in the life of believers if the church is going to fulfill the two things that God wants the church to fulfill. If we're going to be the kind of church that God wants us to be. So it's not just looking at this balanced lifestyle so that I can be uh, a, 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 so, so it can relate to my individual life as a follower of Jesus Christ. It's also about the fact that if our church is going to exhibit these two themes that Paul is going to talk about, then it requires all of us to live a balanced lifestyle. The more of us that are living this kind of balanced lifestyle, the more these two characteristics are going to be evidenced in our local church. So that's kind of how we're going to look at today. Today we're just going to kind of give you the background. And so we want to look at the historical setting. How, do, how, how does Paul get to this place? Uh, how, what has Paul's relationship been with these people in Ephesus and the church here? Well, go turn, keep your place there in, in Ephesians and, and go, to, go to the book of Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, this is very early on in Paul's first missionary journey. And in Acts chapter 16, and if you look at verse 8, I'm sorry, verse 6, you read this. And they went through the region of Phrygia, and basically, you, you see here, I, I should have got me some kind of pointer, but, but basically what you have here, Paul starts out on his, his missionary journey from Antioch, and he makes his way here through Asia, and he gets up there in the corner to Troas. And when he's up there in the corner to Troas, it's his desire to go back in through Asia, through this area right here. But God forbid, oh, you got one? Can I use it? Whoa, wow. I didn't share it. That's not. Okay. Well, bummer. Okay, thanks. I thought I was going to be a millennial here for a second, but it didn't happen. Okay, but anyhow, so we're up here in Troas, okay? And it's there in Troas is what you've probably heard called the Macedonian call. The Macedonian call. It's where Paul's there, and in a dream... He has a dream of somebody from Macedonia that says, come over and help us. And so instead of going back into Asia, they cross there from Troas. They go up into Europe, up into Macedonia, and eventually they end up in their way to Corinth. Paul ends up in Corinth, and in Corinth, basically Paul will spend approximately 18 months. He spends about a year and a half in Corinth. 
And then after Corinth, Paul goes back and he makes his way and you can see Ephesus right there. He makes his way back to Ephesus and Paul spends not a lot of time in Ephesus. It could have been, it could have been as short as, as, as a week. Most, it certainly was less than a month. But Paul spends a very short amount of time in Ephesus. He promises to return and he leaves Priscilla and Aquila. Now, in Acts chapter 19, we're not going to look at that and read through that, but you can kind of, if you can listen and scan and, and, and do that, feel free to do so. In Acts chapter 19, Acts chapter 19 covers Paul's second missionary journey. Uh, and, 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 well, I'm sorry, this is Paul's third missionary journey. It's his second visit to Ephesus. And basically, as Paul goes out, he leaves from Antioch, on his second missionary journey, he's going to go back. They're going to revisit the churches through there. Uh, I'm sorry, this third missionary journey. He, he's going out on his third missionary journey, and he ends back up. He goes through Lystra, Lystra, and then he ends up in Ephesus. When he gets to Ephesus this time, he stays. And he stays in Ephesus for, uh, for approximately close to probably three. It's over two years. It may be as long as three years. And Paul is, is, is on this visit uh, to Ephesus. He experiences a time of harvest. He experiences a time of encouragement. It's a time when Paul sees a lot of spiritual fruit from his ministry. Uh, he reaches both Jews and Gentiles. Jews come to Christ. Gentiles come to Christ. And, and, but then over the course of that almost three-year time period in there, and again, you read about it in Acts chapter 19... There's so many people that are coming to Christ that the silversmiths that are making the idols of Diana uh, for, uh, for the people to, to worship, they're losing business. It's affecting their pocketbook. They're fine with it until it starts affecting their pocketbook. And then because it starts affecting their pocketbook, opposition rises up, led by Demetrius. And Demetrius leads this opposition. He's a silversmith. And basically he's saying this Paul and this Christianity is not only uh, blaspheming our goddess, but it's taking away our livelihood. He probably got that out of order a little bit. He's probably much more concerned about his livelihood than he is on the, on, on the, integ- on, on the respect that is being shown to, to their goddess. But anyhow, you, we have this huge uproar. And, and, if, you, and if you go on and, and read uh, in, in chapter 20 of Acts in verse 1, it says, After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. So you have this huge uproar that takes place incited by Demetrius, and this is probably the reason why Paul departs. He departs Ephesus, and he's going to back up into Macedonia, is again, into Troas, and back over into Philippi, Thessalonica, Corinth. And so he's going to go back up in there, into Europe. So you can go back up there and revisit the churches back up in, in, in that area. Now, look at chapter 20 and verses 16 and 17. It says, For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was elders there. This occurs about a year later. Again, Paul, Paul had spent about over two years in Ephesus, probably as much as three years' time. You have this huge uproar that takes place because of the change that is taking place uh, in, in, in the worship of the false gods there. And then he goes, and he goes back up, and for about the next year, he takes his place. He goes up through Macedonia, visits the churches, Philippi, Thessalonica, Corinth, comes back around, makes his way back around, and he's wanting to try to get down. You can't see it, but he's wanting to try to get back to Jerusalem in time for the Feast of Pentecost. So to do that, he's going to bypass Ephesus, which is a seaport, and instead go to Miletus. And when he gets to Miletus, he asks for the Ephesian elders, the the elders of the Ephesian church, to come meet him. And they come meet him, and, and Paul shares his heart with them. Uh, Paul talks to them about the fact that's how he's labored in love towards them. He tells them to watch out for those who are going to try to come into the church and destroy the church. And he says, even from some of you, there might be some who might try to come and destroy the church. And Paul lets them know that he's probably never going to see them again. And uh, he, he probably doesn't. But Paul says, I'm probably not going to see you guys again. I'm on my way to Jerusalem, but I just wanted to share my heart and open my heart to you. 
So that's Paul's, for sure, that's, that's the times that we know of Paul visiting the, 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 the people whom this letter was written to. Now we come to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. After saying farewell to the Ephesian elders in Miletus, Paul journeys to Jerusalem. And so he journeys to Jerusalem, and there, I think it's the next, I think it's the next map there. He journeys to Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is down here. And remember, this is where he goes into the temple, and they think that he's brought Gentiles in the temple. And so they take Paul, they start beating Paul, and uh, so they imprison Paul in Jerusalem. Uh, Paul's nephew finds out that they're going to try to kill him. And so he, his, his, he, Paul tells his nephew to go speak to the, the, the Roman soldiers in charge. And so then they take Paul, and by night they transfer him to Caesarea, which is right here. And so they transfer Paul to Caesarea, and Paul stays in Caesarea for two years. He's transferred there. He's arrested. He's in prison in Jerusalem. He's only there for maybe a month or two. But he's transferred to Caesarea, and he's in prison for two years there. He's tried, and remember when he's tried, he says, I appeal to Caesar. I appeal to Caesar. As a Roman citizen, Paul had that right. He says, I appeal to Caesar. And then that begins this journey right here that's going to take Paul eventually to Rome. That's going to take Paul eventually to Rome. So Paul is making that journey. He's transported to Rome and he's imprisoned. When he gets to Rome, he becomes imprisoned for two years in Rome. He's probably under house arrest. And it's during this time, this two-year time, that Paul writes what is known as the prison epistles. There are four prison epistles as it relates to Paul's first... This is Paul's first imprisonment in Rome. There's four prison epistles. There's Philippians. Paul wrote that from prison. There is Colossians slash Philemon. Again, that's two different books, but Philemon is the short story about the slave. Remember that comes... Onesimus is a slave of Philemon... And uh, he, he, he runs to Rome, he hides in Rome. God, in God's providence, he brings Paul and, and Onesimus together. Onesimus comes to trust Christ. And now Paul realizes, though he, he certainly can use Onesimus, Onesimus is, is an important part of his life. He's ministering to Paul well. Paul knows that also Onesimus and Philemon need to make sure that they're reconciled. So he sends the letter of Colossians to the church at Colossae, which Philemon is a part of, uh, and, and he sends back the letter to Philemon by Onesimus and by another person. And so he sends that back there to them. And so Paul writes that as well as Ephesians. So these are the four. When Paul is writing Ephesians, Paul is writing it as a Roman prisoner. He's in Rome. So that's the historical setting of what's taking place. That's Paul's relationship with the church and the people at Ephesus. So why does Paul write this letter? Why does Paul write this letter? A lot of Paul's letters, his epistles, are known as situational letters. That's one, and there's other terms that are used. But basically what a situational letter is, that Paul is dealing with a particular problem or problems within the church. Uh, There's this problem. Uh, The church at Corinth is flooded with problems. Paul is dealing with all the different problems uh, in the church at Corinth. And many times Paul's letters or Paul's epistles are dealing with a particular problem, a particular situation in the church. That's not the case with the book of Ephesians. There's, there, there's really no problem, that you, as you look at the book of Ephesians, there's really no problem that seems, a specific problem, that seems to be addressed by Paul. No, no, no uh, the, problem that he continues to talk about over and over again. However, the purpose of Paul's letter, of this letter, can possibly be understood from the two main themes of this book. The two main themes of this book, the first theme is that of unity. It's that of unity. There is a word that is found in the book of Ephesians that's used twice in Ephesians chapter 4. So if you go back to Ephesians chapter 4 and look at verse 3. He says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Look at verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith. The word that's translated unity there is the word henotes or henotes. 
That is the only place you find it in the New Testament. Those two places. The only place you will find the word henotes in the entire New Testament. And it's translated unity. Paul uses the term one. It's the word, it's, it's either, it'll either be hase, which is one for if you want to use it in the masculine sense. If it's with something, a feminine noun, or uh, you use the word mia, mia means one, or if it's neuter, you use the word hen. So it's haste, mia, hen. It's all the same thing. One's masculine, one's, one's feminine, one's neuter. It all means one. And so you'll either find it as haste, you'll either find it as mia, or you'll either find it as hen, and you will find that word translated one 14 times in the book of Ephesians to express unity. Look at this example. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all. He's stressing unity. Also, 38 times you find the phrase in Christ or a similar expression to it, indicating, you might say in Him or something like that, that's what we mean by similar expression, indicating the means by whom or the sphere in whom this unity is achieved. You know why I'm one with you today if you know Christ is your Savior? It's not because we, we agree politically. It's not because our skin color may be the same. It's not because you, like me, are from the great state of Ohio. You know? it, it, it's got, or that you're a Packer fan. You know? uh, it's got nothing to do with that. What, my, what unites us as believers is Jesus Christ. We are one in Christ. That's what unifies us. It's not our preference over music. It's not our preference on which translation we prefer. It, it, it's, not about any, it's not about our political affiliation. It's about the fact that we have a relationship with God the Father through the person and work of Jesus Christ. We are in Christ. In Christ. The church, when Paul talks about the church, he calls it one body. When he talks about the church, he says we're part of one temple. When he talks about the church, he says the church is one bride. Jesus isn't a polygamist, okay? He's, he's a monogamist. He's married to one church, not a bunch of churches. He's married to one church. There can be no doubt when you look at this book that unity is a prominent theme. Paul wants these Ephesian believers in Christ to be united. Now, unity doesn't mean that we've got to agree about everything. Unity doesn't mean that we have the same idea. Unity doesn't mean that we have the, uh, the same outlook. Unity doesn't mean that we, that we have the same priorities necessarily. But we are united in Christ. And so all these other things are, are to be laid aside because of the fact that we are united in Christ. But how is this unity achieved and that brings us to the second major theme in the book of Ephesians, which is the theme of love. Now, for those of you that like numbers, you're going to like this next thing right here. In all of Paul's other epistles, when the noun or the verb of love is used, in all of Paul's other epistles, for every thousand words, he uses either the noun form or the verbal form of love 3.31 times. In all of his other epistles, every thousand, every thousand words, you'll find three times, almost three and a third times, you'll find the word love. In the book of Ephesians, for every thousand words, you'll find the word for love 8.23 times. Over twice the amount that is used in all the other epistles. For every thousand words in the book, and we're talking about Greek words, for every thousand words in the, in the book of Ephesians, eight times you'll find the word verbal or noun form of the word love. It's found in the book 20 times. It's found in the book 20 times. Five times it refers to God's love for humans. Three times it refers to Christ's love for humans. So eight times it's referring to the Godhead's love for human beings. Eleven times it refers to the believer's love 
for one another. And only once, only once is that word found to speak about our love for Christ. Now, now think about that. So what is Paul emphasizing here? He's emphasizing Christ, God's love for us, and our love for one another. In other words, because Christ loves me, I should love who? You. Because Christ loves me, I'm to love you. And I'm not to love you because you're like me. I'm not to love you because we agree on everything. I'm not to love you because we see eye to eye. I'm not to love you because you're fortunate enough to be a Packer fan like I am. I'm to love you because like you, I'm in Christ. I'm in Christ. Paul speaks, and when Paul writes, now think, remember what we told you when he, when he talks to the, to the Ephesian elders in the book of Acts. Paul speaks of laboring to them in love. You know how I labor to you in love. When Paul writes to Timothy, again, this is the second time Paul, and the last time Paul will be imprisoned in the Roman jail, but these are the past, they're called the pastoral epistles. When Paul writes to Timothy, do you know where Timothy is pastoring at? Take a guess. Come on. Ephesus. There we go. He's, he is pastoring in Ephesus. And you know what he tells Timothy to do as he's pastoring in Ephesus? To labor in love to them. Paul tells the Ephesian elders, I labored in love to you. Paul tells Timothy, who's pastoring in Ephesus, is Paul is just... just just that far away from his head being separated from his body. Paul tells Timothy, you labor to them in love. And the next time we see the church at Ephesus addressed is found in the book of the Revelation, where, where, where Jesus is addressing the seven churches in Asia. And when he addresses these churches, remember what he said to the Ephesian church? He commends them and he says, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. Love. Paul labored to them in love. He tells Timothy to labor to them in love. And Jesus admonishes them the fact that they've left their first love. Love is a major theme in the book of Ephesus. So from this dual theme, unity and love, we can conclude that the purpose of this book is simply this, to promote a love for one another that has the love of God and Christ as its foundation, which provides the basis for unity. Now again, you say, why are we spending all the time doing this? Because when we get to these five things and what it means to live a balanced lifestyle, it's not just about me and Jesus. It's so that I can be helpful, that I can be uh, an instrument of grace, that I can be a positive influence so that as a church we are exhibiting love towards one another out of, out of gratitude of God's love for us that is the basis for unity. We may not agree. We, may even have to, we might even sin against one another. We might have to ask for forgiveness. We might have to seek forgiveness. But our love and our unity is, but our unity is based on God's love for us, and because God loves us, we love one another. We love one another. Now, we conclude by examining the structure. And as you look at the structure, one of the keys to this structure is this phrase right here, aon peripateo. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. It means, therefore, walk. Therefore, or so, or now. Uh, again, it's a conjunction that can mean therefore, so, now, uh, when, but therefore or so, and then parapateo, walk. Or to, the idea of walk is not just you know, walking, it's the idea of living. It deals with my lifestyle. It deals with how I live my life. So, since all believers have become one person in Christ, resulting in a mutual experience of Christ's life. Do you realize... 
Christ loves the person sitting next to you as much as He loves you. Not one bit more, not one bit less. Christ loves me as much as He loves you. Christ loves you as much as He loves me. Not one bit more, not one bit less. He loves me. And He loves you. And because you and I have experienced, have this mutual experience of Christ's love, then how is the body of Christ expected to live? Because Christ loves me, and because Christ loves you and gave Himself for you and gave Himself for me, then as part of the body of Christ, how are we expected to live? Not just individually, but a way that promotes, as we live out our lives individually, in a way that promotes unity and love. And our te- we finally got to the text. And our text answers the question, I therefore, there's the Alan, I therefore, a prisoner, chapter 4 and verse 1, for the Lord, urge you to walk, peripateo, in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Because of our mutual experience of Christ's love, how am I as a member of the body of Christ? How are you as a member of the body of Christ expected to live? You are expected to live this way. To walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. That's how you and I are expected to live. You say, what does it mean to walk in a worthy manner or worthily? The word is axios. Axios. And axios literally means this, bringing up the other end of the scales. Bringing up the other end. Axios, just the literal meaning is to bring up the other end of the scales. So in other words, the emphasis here is on the fact, what does he tell us here? I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Walk in a manner to bring up the scales so that your calling and your conduct is in balance. In other words, who I am in Christ and how I live in Christ matches. My living matches who I say I am. Living a balanced life. Our call and conduct is equivalent. I'm living like a believer. I'm living like a believer. Now, what does this balanced life look, look like? Again, Paul makes it easy to determine. He makes it easy to determine by the five, five times, remember we told you that phrase, aon peripateo. Five times you find that phrase in chapter 4, verse 1 to chapter 5 and verse 22. So look at it. The first thing he tells us to do is what we're called. Look at verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the, of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then he talks about one body, one spirit, one hope, one call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father. In other words, the first thing he talks about here is living in unity. Therefore, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Live in unity. Live in unity. You are united in Christ. Live like it. Live like it. You have a unity. You have a unity in Christ. The scale shouldn't look like this. Make sure you're living like it. So what, who you are, united in Christ, is how the church is responding, how the church is acting. He also tells us to live in holiness. Again, look at verse 17. He says, now this I say. Now, in fact, that, that's the word there. That's the word there. Now. It, it's translated now in the ESV on that. It's the same word, I don't know. We could say, therefore, or so. 
This I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk, peripateo, as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. And he's talking about we are to walk or we are to live in holiness. He talks about that all the way down to verse 32. That we are to live in holiness. And look how he, look how he ends it. What does it mean to live in holiness? Is this what it means? Yes. God bless you. What's it, live, what's it mean to live in holiness? Look at how he ends it in verse 32. Be kind to one another. Tenderhearted. Forgiving one another. As God and Christ forgave Does it mean we should avoid sin? Yes, it does. Does it mean we should be careful about what our eyes see and what our ears hear and and, and where we go? Yes, it certainly does. But holiness is more than just about what what we avoid. Holiness, living a holy life, he ends it by saying, be kind. Be tenderhearted. Forgive. And you know what? Has God been kind to us? Has God been tenderhearted towards us? Has God forgiven us? Balance it. Because God has done this for us. Make sure that you live in a manner worthy, axios. Bring up the scale. Balance the scale so that your conduct is a conduct of kindness, tenderhearted, forgiving. That doesn't mean there's not times we need to confront. That doesn't mean that there's not times we need to draw some hard lines. But even when we're doing that, we need to make sure that we're doing it from a tender heart and a heart that's breaking. Not so we can, you know, get them. The next thing he tells us to do is live in love. And again, there we see it. Therefore, there's our word again, Own. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and parapateo, walk in 5-1. We are to walk in love. Why? As Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Remember, all the way back to purpose is that that we are to display love towards one another based on the fact of of how Christ and God has loved us. Eight times we read that in the book of Ephesians. Eleven times we're to love one another, and that is the basis of our unity. Paul says here, again, we love. Why do we love? Because Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us. Whoa! Man, that's a, truth we, that's a truth we sing about. That's a truth we revel in. But let's make sure we walk axios. Let's bring the scales in balance. Do I live in love? Do I live, do I walk in a way that gives myself up for others? We see it again in 5.7. We see our words there again. He says in 5.7, Therefore, own, do not become partners with them. For at one time you are darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Peripateo, as children of light. We're to live in the light. We're not to live in darkness. Look what he says. Uh, he, he tells us, for the, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And we'll talk about what it means to, to live in the light. And then finally... He says, look at verse 15. He says, look careful then how you walk. Look careful then how you walk. The therefore is not there. It's implied. Therefore, look careful then how you walk. Peripateo. Not as unwise, but as wise. We're to live wisely. Wisely. He says, therefore, do not be foolish but he says, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will 
of the Lord is. We are to live wisely. Next week, we'll, we'll kind of give a general overview of this and, and, and look at these areas and go back to chapter 4 and verse 1 and look at these areas, see how it ties into the first three chapters as we, as we deal and speak to the issue of doctrine and devotion. Doctrine should lead to devotion. We'll see the doctrines that are being talked about in chapters 1 through 3. And then how that, then in chapter 4 and verse 1, the, the first three words of chapter 4 and verse 1 are exactly the first three words of Romans 12. 1. Exactly the first three words of Romans 12. 1. And, and so we'll see how that ties together as we kind of get an understanding, a general idea of what it means to live in unity, live in holiness, live in love, live in the light, live wisely as we live out our lives as believers with one another in order that we can promote love and unity within the church. I can get up here every Sunday and say, Love everybody! But I ain't going to do a bit of good. Because there's, there's, there's times I have a hard time loving my wife. Or, you guys be united. I can say it. But it's not going to happen until this is put. I'm, I'm not saying we're not. Please don't misunderstand. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying you don't, you, don't, you don't get people in unity by beating over their head to tell them to be united. Unity is a natural byproduct of loving each other. It's a byproduct of loving one another. And as we love because of how Christ has loved us, we can't help but be unified. So for now, again, we'll, we'll stop here. But for now, how balanced is your call and conduct scale? We're to walk worthily. Axios. If you're like me, there have been times this past week when the scale of conduct has not been balanced with the scale of call. The conduct is light. It, it, it's light over here. I mean, I, 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 my, my call is heavy. Deep truths, wonderful truths. Experience the truth of God's love and God's acceptance and God's righteousness and God's goodness and, 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 and God's wisdom and, and, and God's holiness. And boy, that, that's, that's deep and that's, again, part of the idea of, of, of God being worthy. Uh, in the Hebrew, is the, it, the word, it, it means heavy. God's heavy. You know, like we used to say back in the city, man, that's he- heavy, man. Man, that is heavy, you know. You know again, my generation understands it, you know. Eh, heavy, man, real heavy, you know. It, and God's heavy. He's heavy. You know, he, he's, he's worth, he, he's, he, he, he is beyond comprehension. And so my call is, but God doesn't expect me. God doesn't want me. God, doesn't, God commands me not to live this way. God says, you balance that scale, Greg. You, you allow me to work in your life. You work out your own salvation, as he says in Philippians, with fear and trembling. And you balance that scale so that your life is just not all about these, these, these truths that you hang on to. But your life is also about putting these truths into practice. And there's, as, as believers, we're, we're never going to have it perfectly like this all the time. We're always going to be kind of like this. And sometimes we'll... We'll get here and kind of, and depending on what area it is in our life, sometimes it's you know, way up like this and some areas a little bit more closer. But God expects us to walk in a way where we are working at a balanced life to bring who we are in Christ in alignment to how we live our lives. That's a balanced lifestyle. So where do we begin? We begin by humbling ourselves before God in repentance. God, show me those areas where my conduct and call is nowhere near balanced. And Lord, where I see it's not balanced, help me to repent. Lord, help me to recognize my need. I can't do this on my own. I don't have the strength and the power, yea, even the desire. To do this. But if you've commanded it of me, you will enable me. So help me to live, again, as our text says, therefore, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, 
urge you to walk in a manner worthy, axios, of the calling to which you have been called. God, you expect me to bring the scale in balance. Give me the grace and the ability to do so. God, I'm ready to yield to you all the areas of my life. All the areas of my life in order that I can grow and live a balanced life. Should you be concerned about your physical health? Yes. Should you be concerned about your mental vitality? Yes. Should you be concerned about your social health? Yes. And your work-life balance? Yes. And your spirituality? But even more important than those things is for us to make sure as part of the body of Christ because we are united in Him and because of His love for us we are to love one another and as we love one another one of the byproducts of that love is our unity in Jesus Christ. It means that I've got to live in unity. I've got to walk in holiness. I need to walk in love. I need to walk in the light. And I need to walk wisely. And if we will strive to do that individually and as a church, we'll find ourselves living a balanced life. And our call and conduct will look more like this than anything like that. Let's pray. Father, what hope you give us today that this can be part of our lives. And, and Father, that we can have a unity that is supernatural because it's based upon your supernatural love for us as we love one another. And that love becomes the foundation of our unity. Father, so often we as human beings try to find foundations of sand to build unity upon. And it, it just won't work. It won't work. It'll last for maybe a little while until the storm comes. And when the storms come, when life gets hard, when situations get difficult, then our love for one another is truly exposed. When we're offended or things aren't moving as fast as we'd like them to move or they're not moving in the direction that we'd like for them to move, our love will be exposed. So Father, I pray you'd help us as we take this excursus, as we take this journey off the path of parables for a little while, to look at what it means as a believer to live a balanced life, that we can see how it benefits the body of Christ. Lord, expose those areas in our lives where our, our, our conduct just simply doesn't meet the scale of our call. Where we need to grow, where we need to change. And Lord, if there's somebody here today that doesn't know Christ as their Savior, Lord, they're, they're trusting in the fact that they've been a member of a church or they've been baptized or uh, they said a prayer or uh, they walked an aisle or, Lord, but... Lord, their, their hope is not based, their foundation is not based in the fact that, that you died for them and that their only hope is the fact that your son became a human being. He added to himself flesh and lived the life that we can never live, a life of perfection and offered up his perfect righteousness as a sacrifice to you. To, the, for, to be the payment of, of, of their sin. And that 
He rose again from the grave because you accepted that payment. And when we put our faith in who Christ is and what He's done for us, and we come to Him in repentance of our sins and by faith believing in Him that He is sufficient to make us acceptable to God, that He is who He says He is. And Lord, at that moment we have, we possess eternal life. And we've been made acceptable in Your sight. Lord, I, I just ask now that You would help us and encourage us, that we would see these truths lived out in the lives of our church, in the life of this church, in the lives of, of, of our homes, as we live it out, Father, as trying to be a witness to those outside of the faith. Lord, that we would see change result because of our submission to you, to your spirit, as he seeks to apply the word of God to us. Thank you for all that's ours in Christ. Thank you that our unity, the true unity, is found in him. Not in anything in this world, but in him. And we thank you for that. For we pray these things in Christ's name through the Spirit. His heads are bowed and eyes are closed. We don't have an altar call, but we do have an invitation because we all will respond to God's Word today. I don't know what your need is. I don't know if you have a relationship with Christ, uh, with God the Father through Christ or not, but if you don't, you can have that relationship today. And if you do, just encourage you to be open and allow the Lord to speak into your life regarding the scale of your call and conduct. And uh, that God would, um, that we would humble ourselves before Him and allow Him not to show us our spouse's need or our children's need or our parents' need or the person sitting beside us or in front of us or behind us or leadership's need or the deacons and deaconesses' need or the trustees' need. But God, show me where I need to grow and change. And as we take that responsibility to do so, we'll see the church change. If you want to give you an opportunity to speak to the Lord, then we'll continue our worship through our giving. Let's bow to him in a moment of silence.